exciting, Jim. But not as we know it. This is big. It is quarter past 11 a.m. on Friday, the 25th of February, 2022, and you have tuned in to the Bashcast. Coming up this morning, we're having a break from discussion about sports betting results just to change things up, so we enter the problem gambling debate. How did we get here? Where does personal responsibility fit in and how are restrictions related to this discussion Tom goes to Bali and orders three chilli margaritas how does that fit into the discussion a Malaysian businessman sues Aspinall's for £3.9 million after going on a losing streak in double Baccarat and we finish with a story as Tom reflects on a single hand of Omaha he played against Stephen Chidwick in the World Series of Poker 2011. All of that and more coming up in this morning's Bashcast. Honestly, I don't know why I don't just delete Twitter. I seem to spend a lot of time complaining about it and I have breaks and period of time away from it and then I come back and then it's all continues just to be exactly the same negative experience. I need to get around to that delete button. Maybe I'm addicted to it. Maybe I'm addicted to the pain that it causes me. So the other day I shared um I celebrated in a silly way with a gif of a man walking away from a fire, which is always the kind of gif that makes me laugh. The golf, um, the golf success of five winners and seven events, which is extraordinary. It really is extraordinary. And the first reply under this celebration was why don't you go and look up the word luck in the dictionary? And I guess I have to sort of understand where he's coming from. I mean, there's a very British trait that we don't celebrate success. Um, We don't like to see it celebrated. And I'm kind of aware of all of the mathematics that have gone into everything, but also I'm I'm more than aware when I'm running hot. In fact, um... A very simple technique is using a variance calculator, but after talking to, after talking to Joseph Buchtal in the recent podcast, why not build a very simple um, Monte Carlo simulator in Excel, which I've done right in front of me right now. So look, I bet between 15, 10 to 15% of the field, I I do try and hit the 15% a little bit more frequently than the 10%. So, for argument's sake, let's say I'm covering about one-sixth of the field. 
right? That would be 16.6%, probably a little bit less, but let's just call it a sixth of the field. So um, seven tournaments, I had five winners. So equals Rand is less. If Rand is less than one divided by six, let's return one. If that does happen, if the random number generator comes in, the roll of the dice comes in, and zero if it doesn't. And we'll copy that across seven columns, that's seven tournaments, and then we'll add up how many times there is a one. We'll sum up the ones and zeros there. And then I've copied this 36,000 rows. And we find out that the number of times I would have fully busted zero winners, 28.2%. So 70% of the time I would have had at least one winner. In fact, 38.8% of the time I would have had exactly one winner. 23% of the time, two winners. Um, how many times? Five winners or more? 0.19%, which is about 1 in 500. So that's how hot I've been running in the last seven tournaments. So why don't you look up the word luck in the dictionary? Instead of doing that, I've looked up the word luck using a Monte Carlo analysis, and I found out that the last seven tournaments I've been running about 1 in 500 expectation for them. Now, that's nothing. That just happens. I mean, I bet so frequently, like I had a extremely unlucky run, which I actually think was somewhere in the region of about 1 in 300 between the end of November and the end of January, right, where I didn't get any place over and over and over again. And so it's meaningless. And maybe you could say that I'm cherry picking the very hot run to publicize on Twitter. Well, I'm just having a dopamine response to something extreme that's happened. And that's kind of the key around it. And so the next thing that I had on Twitter was somebody had actually posted that they found the last Bashcast, the little segment that I did on uh, the party political broadcast at the beginning. They thought it was funny and they uh, posted it. And it was, again, look, I, I can't, it's me being stupid and having a dopamine response. It's how I express it. I'm quite happy. I'm enjoying myself. I have previously talked about losing runs. And so now I'm talking about a winning run in a manner that it's funny. And someone, and this kind of affected me a little bit more than the guy that asked me to look up luck in the dictionary. He said, nonsense like that is only going to encourage problem gambling. And I'm not going to do the silly drama sound now because I'm going to take that a little bit more seriously because that's quite an accusation that I, uh, I'm going to... I, 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 okay, I, I get that people when I'm silly, especially older people, brackets, by that I mean people my age, when I'm being silly... Describe it as nonsense, whatever. That's fine. I get that some people think that. But I think it's quite serious and important to discuss the suggestion that any of this encourages problem gambling. Now, I take that a little bit more seriously. I'm all for personal responsibility, right? You have a, you know, you could be an unlucky person. Things could be going wrong in your life. You could ha you could be a carer having to look after people. You can't do much about that. You love the person, you have to look after them. 
right? Some people have a little bit less fortune on their sides, and there are things that you can do something about, and there are things that you cannot do something about. The roll of the dice, right? And one of the things you can do something about is how you react and how you behave towards the world and toward, and how you control your own actions. Now, uh, suggesting that people out there have gambling problems, have addictions, nobody has ever questioned that. I mean, it, um, there are loads of different addictions out there. Chemical addictions, behavioral addictions, you know, the chemical drinking, drugs, behavioral issues such as um, working out too much. Ex loads of people are addicted to exercise. I've met a load of them in my life. Shopping, food, TV, Facebook, gambling. There's loads of different behavioral issues. The question is, am I responsible as the nonsense that I spout, responsible for promoting problem gambling. And that's what I wanted to address. Three points initially. First of all, the Bashcast started off seven years ago as my personal diary, and seven years later, audience figures have risen to exactly the same as they were seven years ago. Um, uh, except maybe when we've got a guest on, there's a few handful more. But it's still my personal diary. There's no adverts on here. There's no sponsorship. I actually don't even mention um, brought to you from bookiebashing.net anymore after someone said they didn't like that very much. I was like, yeah, okay, this is my personal diary of what I do. There's no income. Actually, I get an email... Um, uh, every now and again from the podcast hosting people who suggest I can make a few thousand dollars by inserting some adverts into the Bashcast. I don't do that. It pales into insignificance into the income that I make from gambling. As incidentally, does anything that comes via bookiebashing.net. Um, it's always interesting seeing people discuss the income there. When doing that, try and remember how many people are working part and full time at bookiebashing.net and all of a sudden any income that comes through that revenue pales into insignificance to that that I make as a professional gambler. So uh, the Bashcast is a personal diary and nobody is forced to listen to it. And at the beginning of the last podcast, I was aware that I was going to talk about winning. I thought I could do that because A, it had happened. B, the previous podcast, I had talked a lot about the losing run that I'd gone through. I enjoyed being a little bit silly during it. I had a dopamine hit in my head that I wanted to get across. I wanted to share the love with everybody. That's the first point. Secondly, if you come to bookiebashing.net, we actually have a big thing on sign-up that, tells, um, that explains exactly who we do not want at bookiebashing.net and we explicitly state if you think you um, need the money, if you expect to make money in the way that people have made guaranteed money in other forms of advantage play, we're not for you. And if you think you need to feed your kids, I don't want you at bookiebashing. Go and get a job. Seriously, go and get a job, right? 
This is recreational money that would be used for stocks and shares or any or other kinds of investment. Um, and it makes money in the long run. But if you need money for mortgage or your kids, you don't come to Boogie Bash and donate. You just don't. I don't want you here. I don't want you using that money. That's not what the money's for. Any money that you have needs to be going on your family. If you don't have the disposable cash, you can't come and play, right? If you're a problem gambler, if you let gambling have the negative effects on your life, then we don't want you. And we actually say this, and we provide links to the helpful organizations, such as GamCare and the rest of them, that can help you. At that point, my responsibility ends. Okay, because I can now move on now that I've made it clear who I'm for and who I'm not for, I want to give you an example of this. I was out in Bali for a wedding. Um, and I went to a restaurant with a lot of the wedding party, a lot of whom were from Australia. I didn't know. I'd never met before. And I ordered... There was this fantastic Mexican restaurant in Bali with a shrine of Snoop, Dog, Do, Snoop Doggy Dog, a candle shrine as you walk in. It's got all of these colours. The menu's fantastic. Uh, there's a lot of noise and energy with a central square bar in the middle of the restaurant with um, with the bar stewards juggling cocktails. Really good fun. The whole place. Great effort. Run by a couple of um, surfer guys from Australia. And I was sat across the table from a lady I didn't know and she ordered a... Sparkling water, I ordered a chili margarita. One of them margaritas with the crushed up chilies inside it, right? She got served her sparkling water. Ten minutes go by, I still haven't had my drink. So I remind them, I've got a chili margarita on the way, please. And then another five minutes, I still haven't got a drink. And I remind them a second time. You know, I've got a chili margarita, I'm getting quite thirsty over here. You know, where's the where's the margarita El Chapo's, and I'm talking to the lady across from me. And um, she says, what do you do? Which, as any advantage player professional gambler, always knows is a difficult conversation to have. You really have to say, I don't know. I mean, I'm in, I'm in finance. Uh, and I say, what do you do? And this lady, she works in um, schools in rural areas in Queensland. And she goes up and down the schools for a charity to warn kids about the dangers of problem drinking, of being an alcoholic. And she does this because she is a reformed alcoholic. She has in the past had a significant gambling, um, drinking problem. She's overcome it. She's no longer a drinker. And her job is now to advise people against the dangers of drinking too much. A very admirable thing for her to do and to spend her time doing it's almost like she's turned her life around and now she's making the world a better place good on her and as I, i'm talking to her about this job three chili margaritas in three cocktail glasses get placed in front of me by the waiter there's been the confusion they haven't cancelled the original orders and i was really thirsty and there wasn't much chili margarita but they were really strong and I took a little sip and you got the salt, Himalayan rock salt around the edge. And it was delicious. And I'm looking at these three drinks and I'm like, I think I'm going to drink these. I don't want to send them back. But at the same time, I'm sitting looking at the woman across the table from me who is a reformed alcoholic. And I'm, I have three 
like $10 chili margarita sitting in front of me. Not a good look. But look, I love drinking. I've never been dependent on it. I'm very fortunate that I've never been dependent on it. I've never woken... I actually get quite bad hangovers. And I think people that get bad hangovers, I've got no reason to believe that this is statistically true, but are less likely to be alcoholics because when I've got a hangover, I don't want to touch alcohol. But um, I love nice drinks, well-made drinks. I love having a few too many. I've done that my entire life. I do it a little bit less as I get older and the hangovers get worse. Uh, but I, ha I actually decided this isn't my issue, right? It's unusual for me to have three margaritas in front of me, but I'm not going to feel any shame of drinking these in front of this lady. This lady works in her own field. She has her own issues. And to be fair, she said nothing to me. So it was quite a good way. I mean, I didn't feel under pressure from her. It just felt a little bit unique and weird, that situation. The same with people who are out of control in shopping, who might have an income of £2,000 a month and drive a car that is £800 a month in repayments. There's no one around to stop those guys doing that and they are fiscally irresponsible. But again, it's nobody's responsibility other than these guys. It's not the car dealership's responsibility. I would argue, by the way, I hate any idea of using finance to pay for a car. I think it's moronic. But I don't think it should be taken away. You've got every right, if you earn £2,000 a month, to spend £1,999 per month on a, Lamb on a new Lamborghini. If that's what you want to do, it's your personal responsibility. It is neither the fault of Lamborghini, nor is it the fault of the finance company for you going there. You should have, a free society should have those options. So... Does nonsense like the Bashcast promote problem gambling? Well, obviously I'm going to say no, because it's me. But those are the reasons why, actually, I think that, look, if you have an issue with gambling, and some people do, because there is a chemical change in your brain where you need to get a hit from the activity of gambling. And winners can have it as much as losers. You can have winning gamblers who um, uh, are problem gamblers because they... Now, it gets an, into an interesting field when you get into the field of professional gamblers. Can professional gamblers be problem gamblers? An issue with professional gamblers, professional poker players, professional advantage players, professional casino players, professional match bettors even, professional sports bettors. The problem is nobody walks into the dentist surgery and tells the, de the dental nurse that she's addicted to being a dental nurse and handing out the number two drill to the dentist. Because she has to do that to provide food and put a mortgage over her head. Now, I've gone back full circle here where I said at the beginning of this podcast, I do not want people at bookie bashing who are relying on bookie bashing as a living. The fact of the matter is, I know plenty of people are. I know them personally. The professional gamblers. I am one myself. The professional gamblers who use bookie bashing to eke out a living. Now, I would never, ever advise it to anyone. I think one of the reasons is you need many years of experience. You don't just drop into this. And it's not an aspirational thing. I'm not actually achieving any good for the world. The good for the world I'm achieving 
is solving the addiction problem that some people have of an addiction of stress and not being present in moments and being addicted to social media on phones and not showing enough love to those around them. And so my solution to that always was being able to use this um, technique of professional gambling to be able to spend a little bit more time with my family, with my little kids, turn my phone off, be more present in the time. Now I do that. And if you've been doing it for a decade, maybe the advice might be come over to Bucky Bashy. We might have some tools for you, but certainly don't, you don't escalate. You don't promote yourself into becoming a professional gambler at bookie bashing. So the waters are certainly muddied around people that do it professionally. Can they have, can you be a problem gambler and a professional gambler simultaneously? I don't really have the answers for that. And it's not my position to get into any complex discussion around it. Other than I am a professional. I have never thought that I've had a particular problem in any area, I felt like everything's under control. I work out, but I don't do it excessively. I drink, but I don't do it excessively. In the past, I've taken the drugs and I had never did that too excessively for the same reason that my hangovers were always just a little bit too vicious. I've never shopped excessively. Um, uh, I'm almost anti-social media and TV. I've never binged food too excessively. And maybe I'm lucky that I have things under control. Am I a problem gambler? No. Uh, in the same way that I'm not a problem drinker. In the same way that I'm not a... You know, I've got a barbell, an Olympic barbell at a Peloton and a gym downstairs underneath my office. Some people that don't exercise would call that excessive. Personally, I see that as nothing but enhancing my quality of life. In the same way that gambling has always enhanced my quality of life, and has never been a problem for me. Have I been down after a losing run? Yes. I would not be human if I hadn't been down after a losing run. But that doesn't equate to problem gambling. Am I promoting problem gambling? Well, there is, I think, an interesting subset of people that throw this around. First of all, those that... Do not proclaim for personal responsibility. Those that say there is blame to be had at the feet of certain people that they might not like. And I can understand how I'm, you know, might not, especially out of context when that silly little clip of me pretending to be in a party political broadcast and doing an inspirational speech. Look, I took that from a a video somebody sent me of somebody who was... um, proclaiming that he loves drinking. I actually kind of stole the idea from gambling from that because it was funny and it was cute. Could you argue that that guy was a problem gambler? (laughs) Sorry, a problem drinker? Maybe. But there's two subsets. First of all, there are a lot of people that don't necessarily think that personal responsibility lies at the feet of the people who are gambling but at the feet of the people that they are listening to and the gambling operators. Now, certainly the gambling operators do have some level of responsibility. What about the bash cast? I'm going to say that I have none. All that I would say is that if you are a problem gambler, I don't want you listening anymore. I don't, you, have, you have a problem that you need to solve. I don't have the solutions for you, although I can point you in the direction of gam care, but I'm not an expert in this field. 
but I certainly can't be helping and I don't want to promote anything to you. That's the first one. The second is a more complex field of people. And that is that there are a lot of people out there who remove money from the gambling industry risk-free. They go by a lot of different names. They could be arbors, match betters, traders. However they're doing it, they're taking money out of the industry risk-free. Personally, I've never been a huge fan. The reason I've never been a huge fan is because it's a strange Venn diagram in the gambling industry. But having any industry where you simply have a subset of people that remove money from it without contributing anything into it is toxic and is certainly not scalable. You cannot have that proportion of the Venn diagram get too big without the industry collapsing or even perhaps us getting to a situation in the industry where we're marred with restrictions and the difficulties of getting on. Right? But also, I think a lot of these people that are in that subset of the Venn diagram see anybody that gambles as either idiotic, stupid, a mug, a loser, or somebody that, if they do win long time, promotes problem gambling. I am actually going to flip it on its head and say, those guys that are simply taking something out of an industry without putting a single positive thing back in. Nothing comes out of it. They're not shaping lines. They're not adding investment or money or knowledge or nothing. Nothing com good comes out of the risk-free guys. Those guys are the toxic ones. Those guys are the ones that are actually making the environment harder for professional gamblers, recreational gamblers, and problem gamblers. And I just want to flip it on its head and saying, well, if you're going to throw darts at me for causing issues in this industry, take a long, hard look in the mirror at yourself before you do that. Now, I don't talk a lot about restrictions on the Bashcast, and there's a reason why it's a subject that I like to listen to what people have got to say whilst trying to form my own opinion of what's happening. And the main point I have about restrictions is I don't see how we could be anywhere else just now with a, with a functioning industry other than the place that we are in. Minimum bet laws that are touted out over in Australia don't work here because you have services, certain services that promote training videos around using virtual private networks, VPNs, to operate multiple accounts and bots that will use BetVictor, Betfair Sportsbook, Skybet, will monitor when the prices converge between the horse race, the grade one horse race, the back odds being one tick higher at the bookmaker than it is at the exchange. And because you've got a minimum bet liability on this race, the bot selects the horse, clicks max bet, always max bet, sends the bet through a virtual private network over multiple different accounts, and the bookmaker gets absolutely hammered. His, his line that is most out, that is most likely going to damage his bottom line, is hit multiple times to the maximum amount. 
Now imagine you're a bookmaker operating today. You need to operate at a certain profit level in order to be able to pay your overhead, to be able to pay your staff. And why shouldn't your shareholders get some money? Okay, I'm Tom. I put in £10,000 into a business. I expect as a shareholder that business to return to me 5% over time or 6% or 10%. You can turn around next year and go, I hate the shareholders. I don't want them to have any money. But I'm like, well, I, I invested the money in the first place. So shut up, right? So the bookmaker needs to operate to a certain level of profit. And it's very possible that it sim they simply cannot do that with the presence of so many people taking money so clinically out of the industry. If it was one or two people, perhaps they could survive. But the numbers are frankly too big just now. And the techniques are too efficient and too and too good. They're too they're too good at what they do. And those guys and that community doesn't necessarily exist over in Australia. And if it did, they wouldn't have the law. They wouldn't have the law because the bookmakers wouldn't be able to operate. There'd be no bookmakers left. And so I don't know. I mean, obviously, I hate restrictions. I'd love to be able to open up William Hill Bet365 and be able to bet at these firms. But I can't. I can't bet, I can't bet anywhere other than exchanges and shops. And I can't see how we could be anywhere else other than where we are just now. Um, these companies that own only that are owned by shareholders. I've talked in the past how I dislike William Hill's behaviour because a lot of it is only feeding the pockets of their already wealthy shareholders, or at least you know shareholders who are people that are wealthy enough to be investing. They're not living on the breadline. That's only let me make it clear when Bet William Hill have been acting in a completely unfair and immoral manner. There's nothing immoral and unfair about a bookmaker wanting to operate at a profit and have an obligation to pay its shareholders. I don't see it as being a contradictory environment where they say they don't want to have winners and they can't work with winners. Could there have been a scenario where they restricted a little bit less harsh allowed a few more people to get on. Yeah, if there were fewer profit maximizers, profit accumulators, these communities have cycled through over 100,000 people through the matched betting environment. Uh, if you add up the numbers that they've taken out of the industry, it's quite frankly staggering. And... I don't see I don't see how the operators could have done anything other than they've done the what they've done just now. Pinnacle couldn't survive. It's so sad that people like the, the recreational horse betters out there have been caught in the firing line because that's what's happened. And I don't even think it's most match betters. You will have a small group of match betters that sit at the top end of the bell curve that have cycled through literally one hundreds of accounts. The Carnberries of this world, who proclaim to be top-end, high-end traders. That's what they call themselves. They are top-end, high-end multi-accounters of risk-free strategies. 
And a number of them may have made a million. Quite a lot of them have made hundreds of thousands. Most of them have made tens of thousands. And those guys at the top end of the bell curve have taken so much money out of the industry that the industry is in a place just now where it was inevitable that we were going to be here. It's extremely frustrating that I can't load up William Hill online and bet with them. And I wish I could. But I don't blame them for not allowing me to. I don't blame them for not allowing winners to. Uh, for not allowing professional bettors, who essentially, boiled if you boil it down to it, are also just people who remove money from the environment, albeit with a little bit more risk. It's a lot harder for us professional advantage players to ever click the max bet button unless you are extremely deeply bankrolled. So where do we go from here? I don't have the answers for that either. I don't know how minimum bet laws would work. I just don't think they would. I don't know how the easings of restrictions would work. With so many people willing and ready to remove money from the environment. I have no answers. I'm just not that mad that we've got to where we are because I think it was inevitable. I don't think there was another option. With the popularity and the explosion of the communities under Mr. Stoffel and Odds Monkey and Mr. Krushank, I think it's just inevitable that we would have got to where we are. And I don't know how we get out of it. But shouting about how unfair it is is a little bit useless. It's a bit of a waste of breath, a bit of a waste of time. There are better things to be done spending our times on. For example, finding different and better edges. Moving forward, if you're truly a winning better, like a lot of these traders and sports bettors claim to be, listen, there's something out there where you can bet against other people through a peer-to-peer exchange. And if you're winning without concessions, then you can get as much money on as possible. Unless, of course, Betfair have given you the boot. But even if they have, you've still got Matchbook, Smarkets, BetDAC. I know you don't have as many markets there. But I've been given the boot by by Betfair Exchange. I've been... I can't get any money down at any soft bookmaker in the UK. And so I go and look at Smarkets, Matchbook and shops. You'll find a way. Complaining about it won't get you anywhere. So let's go on to segment number two about um, problem gambling and personal responsibility. Look, so there is obviously a number of people out there, as we've discussed, who have both chemical and behavioral addictions, right? The chemicals make them behave in a certain way, the alcohol, the drugs, and they become dependent on those to be able to function in life uh, uh, and even not function in life. And there's the behavioral addictions as well. Shopping, um, exercising, eating, um, gambling. And 
if you have a gambling issue, it is very complicated as to what point someone needs to step in. I will say this, at bookie bashing, even though we don't facilitate bets ourselves, we don't take bets at bookie bashing, we don't escrow for people betting between each other, we, we only provide data that can help people with bets, and that's, the, that's our sole responsibility. But even so, when we have seen people talking on our forums in the past, uh, and they've shown certain negative behaviours uh, and expressed things that have made us raise an eyebrow and be concerned, we have actually got in touch with people saying, look, we will happily close down your bookie bashing account if you think that you've got a problem. But you need to reach out for us to tell us that. We've had people email us saying that they have a problem and we have stopped those guys from being able to access bookie bashing. I don't want to just take money from anybody. That's not the purpose of bookie bashing. Certainly not from people that look like they need help or have actually said that they need help. But a lot of the time, some, pay, some people might need help, uh, and, but they don't ever say anything. And that's a lot harder. We can't really do anything. We're not facilitating bets, so we can't identify those people. Right? And then you have a subset of that group of people who need help, um, who have actually just lost... And all the losing was perhaps their own responsibility, but they just ended up losing more than they were comfortable with. Now, if they then accuse that to be problem gambling, that becomes an issue because the personal responsibility side of the story is that you need to be going into any betting with a bankroll that you can lose. If you lose more than you set out to lose, then nobody at the level that we're at, should be claiming problem gambling. Nobody betting high stakes should be claiming problem gambling. The only issue could ever be if you hadn't set aside a bankroll at the beginning and you were just depositing more to bet and not knowing and losing track of how much you were depositing. At that point, I can understand the need to jump in with help. But if you know exactly how much you're betting, as a lot of high stakes bettors do, and a lot, all, all professional advantage players should be, then I don't see how this out of control, losing more than you should have lost, can happen. Uh, Mr. Han Joe Lim. I don't know how to pronounce Malaysian names. That's the English spelling. Um, so pr it's, it's almost certain that that is pronounced differently. But Mr. Han... Joe Lim um, is a Malaysian non-independent, non-executive director with a Bachelor of Civil Engineering from Monash University, Melbourne in Australia. Um, he took up the position of operations manager at Yinson Transport in Malaysia um, uh, and became an executive director um, in 1996 for 20 years up until 2016. At which point he then, um, I don't know if it was in 2016, but he certainly had some connections with the UK. This um, director of this 
civil engineering firm in Malaysia. And he had some property in London. Um, so he had property in London and in Malaysia. And he became a member of Aspinall's Casino in London in January 2014. Where he and his family enjoyed the hospitality and gaming facilities on their visits over to London. In October 2015, about 18 months later, Mr. Lim provided a cheque to Aspinall's in return for gaming chips. Now, that's quite usual, especially for high stakes players, VIP players. You'll walk in, you'll say, I want to gamble a million pounds. You'll write a cheque out for a million pounds. Um, the cheque's not immediately necessarily cashed. If you win, you'll take away some winnings. Um, and for high stakes players and VIP players, this is um, very common. And also it ties in with the fact that Mr. Lim walked into the casino knowing exactly how much he was prepared to gamble because he wrote a checkout for that amount. And that was then translated into gaming chips for him in Aspinall's Casino. Mr. Lim then went ahead and he played a game called um, Double Chance Baccarat. Now, Baccarat is a game where the cards have the same um, the same units, um, the same worth as blackjack, right? So two, three, four, five, six, eight, seven, eight, nine, ten, and then all the jacks, queens, kings are your tens. Um, instead of blackjack, though, in blackjack you have a strategy and your expected return will change depending on the strategy that you're playing. All the way from counting, which can be a marginal positive expectation strategy on your side, to, to just normal perfect strategy without counting, where you the casino has about a half percent edge. All the way to a really bad my wife strategy of just drawing on 18 because you're sure a three is going to come and it will come, in which case she's like... You know, expected 200% EV because she's just a lot, but lot box. Um, now, Baccarat, similar, really low edge. Um, but instead, you don't choose what's going to happen. There is a player and a banker, but that's not you and the, the, the casino. These are, these are just names for two sides of the game. And the object, the object of the game is to get to nine or as close to nine as possible. And if you go over nine, if you get to 12, you, you, you take 10 off and you're, you're on two. So, you know, if you draw a six and a six, you're on 12. Take the 10 off, you're a two. You have to get to nine. If you draw a six and a three, that's perfect. That's like getting blackjack. And either the one side will win, the player, or the other side will win, the banker. And you can also bet on a tie. So if I draw a two and a three, that's a five. And you get a two and a three, and that's a five. Then we both got five. It ties. That'll pay eight to one, I think. Something like really... Always te these like side bets are always terrible compared to the probability of them actually happening. That's where the casino gets the biggest edge. And double chance black uh, baccarat is the game that Ian Fleming uh, wrote about James Bond enjoying. Um, and double chance baccarat, you uh, instead of having to specifically bet on the tie, instead you get a little bit back if it is a tie factored into the game every single hand, and that's um, sort of. Um, the difference between double chance. Blackjack, a big fan, uh, is James Bond of this game. So, uh, Mr. Lim went in and 
he cast a check. Now, the guy's worth a lot of money. He's worth 40 million pounds. I'm going to say he's probably worth more than anybody listening to this podcast right now. Um, and he cast a check for, well, he gave Aspinall's a check for four million pounds, and then he played Baccarat for 72 hours, which is quite a long time to be playing um, Baccarat. And over that period of, so Mr. Lim, he made his money in the civil engineering company, but he also had business interests in property, steel, and computer chip manufacturing. And he was allowed to cash checks up to the value of £600,000. So in order to lose £4 million, he's obviously cashed quite a few um, um, different checks. In fact, he lost the initial 600000 Aspinall's is then said to have increased his credit to £1.9 and allowed him to have another £2 million on credit, which he also lost. Um, so this is a bad 72-hour period. Um, and there's a high court writ which says that he played Baccarat for 72 hours with limited breaks. Um, this is a lot of money to lose. I mean, that, no matter who you are, even if you've got 40 million in the bank. If I had 40 million in the bank and I lost 4 million, I wouldn't be happy. You know? If I, if I lost 10% of my bankroll over a 72-hour stint, of my, not my bankroll, but my net worth, that's the difference, right? It sort of um, reminds you of um, one of the biggest whales of all time, Terence Watanabe, who in the course of a single year over in Las Vegas, I mean, he came into inherited money. He lost $204 million in a single year. In Las Vegas, which is just unbelievable. Imagine like his dad, Harry Watanabe, started off with a gift shop in 1932, or the company expanded to 17 shops in the Midwestern United States. Um, Terence took over the company in 1977. He came into $300 million. He lost $204 million playing. Not just negative expectation games, but in a strategy the same way that my wife would play negative expectation games. Just not caring about drawing a three on 18 and things like that. He actually, um, he lost um, um, a lot of money at the win. And then the win turned to him after he'd lost $20 million or something and said... We suspect that you are comp- you are a problem gambler. You are compulsive gambling. We don't want your money. We have a responsibility not to take any more money from you. Which is, you know, fairly decent of the win, I think. So he just went over to Rio and Caesars, who said, hell yeah, we want your money. And then he lost another 180 million with Rio and Caesars. It's just ridiculous. Um, and that's the, that's the difficult thing with problem gambling, isn't it? It's like, if one person shuts you down... It's so easy just to go somewhere else. I don't have a solution for that. It's just a point that I'm, I'm a point that I'm pointing out. So Mr. Lim owes four million pounds to Aspinalls. Um, he then dishonours his checks, so he cancelled the checks. And remember that Aspinalls haven't had the chance to cash these yet. 
after a number of broken promises to pay and triggered by Mr. Lim gambling elsewhere without paying his debt. So he's cancelled the checks but then gone elsewhere and continued gambling. Aspinall's then understandably lost patience and they issued proceedings and applied for a freezing order in 2018. So this is three years. Three years have now gone by. He cancelled the checks. Um, he didn't win, but he continued to gamble elsewhere. The judge actually said that Mr. Lim had given a deliberately dishonest oral evidence during the hearing, right? Um, and breach of a freezing order is a contempt of court. And therefore, after giving Mr. Lim several opportunities to remedy his breaches, uh, an application for contempt of court was given in February 2019 after a number of attempts by Mr. Lim to avoid or delay the contempt. The application was finally heard on the 23rd of July with judgment giving on the 5th of July. Um, uh, Mr. Justice Murray held that Mr. Lim had told a deliberate falsehood in court in respect to the valuation of one of his properties and that he had failed to comply with specific aspects of the disclosure orders. Mr. Lim was found in contempt of court the threshold for custody was not met, so Mr. Lim was given a £100,000 fine on top of the £4 million that he owes Aspinall's casino. Mr. Lim was ordered to file further evidence to purge his contempt and to reduce his fine. Um, uh, Mr. Lim filed an affidavit purportedly in compliance with the order. However, critically, it missed out an answer to one of the sub-questions as to whether Mr. Lim was the ultimate source of monies in his wife's account which were being used to pay his legal fees. Mr. Lim said that his wife was the source of the monies, but did not specify that he was not the ultimate source of the monies that his wife was receiving. And he started muddling together his finances like that. Uh, in earlier affidavits, he listed assets uh, worldwide um, of £20,000. Quite remarkable for a man with over... 40 million and having a large shareholder in multi-billion substantial Malaysian companies. So the takeaways from the case, it was argued that Mr. Lim's counsel in response to both the contempt application and the, um, and the order sanction, that the basis of these were trivial and technical breaches and Aspinall's were not being overly pedantic. Um, and it's very clear that... Mr. Lim is doing everything that he can to avoid paying his debt. Now, in 2022, Mr. Lim is trying to turn the tables by suing Aspinall's at the High Court for his losses, for the 3.9 million losses. He is trying to sue Aspinall's for them. He now claims, and this is like eight years, seven years after he was gambling, he claims that any debts or bans should be null and void because Aspinall's breached its duty under the Gambling Act 2005, which states that vulnerable people should be protected from being harmed or exploited by gambling. The writ adds, rather than forcing the claimant to stop and rest, Aspinall's increased his credit to £2 million. Aspinall's allowed the claimant a further line of credit of £2 million, which he proceeded to lose as well. The claimant had a losing streak and was visibly desperate and panicking. 
Aspinall said it was defending the matter and is seeking that the claim be struck off. The exclusive club added, as the matter is currently under consideration by the court, we await their decision and will not comment further, which is understandable. Gambling and society figure John Aspinall opened the club on the site of the former White Elephant Club in 1962. So this ties in with the discussion of problem gambling. And what do I think here? Because here you have a poor, innocent gambler who has obviously seen and been influenced by not rhetorical, inspirational speeches on the Bashcast, but Ian Fleming's movie and film series and book series about James Bond, whose favourite game is Double Baccarat, Double Chance Baccarat. And here we have a guy, a poor guy, that's got into the casino, and he has a credit line, and he's given them a check, and he's lost his money, and the credit line's been increased, and he's lost more money, and he started panicking because he's losing so much money, and his credit line has increased even more, and he loses it all in a 72-hour period. So what responsibilities do I think that Aspinall's owe this, this businessman, Han Joe Lim? Personally, Han Joe Lim, I think Han Joe Lim is responsible for a lot of the mess that we're in just now in terms of problem gambling. Because it's the separation of personal responsibility and problem gambling. There's no clear line. No one can draw one. If people could, psychologists, psychiatrists would have drawn a line before now as to where responsibility lies and where personal um, and where problem gambling starts. There isn't a clear line. However... There is a distinction to be made. If someone loses all the money that they need to feed their kids, to pay their mortgage, if they have a disposable income of a thousand pounds a month and they deposit a hundred pounds and lose it and then deposit another hundred and lose it and then deposit another hundred and lose it and then deposit another hundred and lose it, the operator could have stepped in at any point and probably should. I'm all for it actually. It, may, it does make my life harder as a professional gambler when operators do step in. I'm seeing Smarkets doing it a lot recently. You've deposited £1,000. Why? Can you prove that you've made that money? Well, I'll tell you what. I've made a lot of my income in the past, a long time ago. All my bookmaker accounts are shut. I only gamble one side on Smarkets with an edge. And I make a lot of money by having to settle with my runners who visit shops that's a very difficult thing to prove it's all legitimate everything i'm doing is legitimate but it's extremely difficult to prove to an operator i cannot blame smarkets for getting in touch with people they're put in an impossible situation they don't want to be in this situation and i feel sorry for people that lose their accounts i also feel sorry for smarkets and i don't think it's either person's fault that this is, this is going on. It's neither customer nor operator. 
I'm a little bit in a position, a stupid position, where I've made a lot of money at Smarkets um, recently, and I would quite like some of it. And I thought about withdrawing 75% of my balance. But then I thought, if I lose the remainder and then want to top it up, am I causing myself complications in the future? I, do, I, I trust Smarkets enough, and I'm, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong, that I don't believe I would ever lose the money. And um, there are not, I, I wouldn't say that for everyone. I wouldn't have this in William Hill. Um, but I don't think I would lose the money if my account was frozen because they were wondering where the money was coming from. All of it's been won. I actually have turned a few hundred quid into a five-figure balance this year at Smarkets, this year alone. Um, so I think we can prove where the money's come from. It's come from them. But let's say I withdraw £7,000, I lose the rest. And then I deposit £5,000. Are they going to get in touch with me and ask me where the £5,000 has come from? Um, the only real income I can show them is from bookie bashing. It takes me a number of months to earn £5,000 as a director of bookie bashing for the work that I do there. Um, so I couldn't show them that. <coughs> so I'm left in this position where I'm fearful to actually withdraw. I'm almost more likely to gamble it or lose it because of this situation. But that's another thing. That's that's not a point I wanted to go into. <laughs> it's just like, because I'm scared of withdrawing the money because of the place that we're in just now, I'm slightly more likely to lose the money than where I'd be able to think I could comfortably withdraw 75%, 80% of it, 50% of it into my bank account. Um, and spend it on a holiday for the kids. <laughs> That's stupid. But that doesn't—that wasn't my point, right? So the, the, I really worry about people who can't afford to gamble and are gambling, gambling more than they wanted to gamble. People that simply went on losing runs, especially when they defined their bankroll at particular steps. They started at six thousand or six hundred thousand. They went to 2 million and then they went to 2 million over the course of 72 hours. They make 72 hours sound like a short period of time. That's not minutes. That's not losing and redepositing immediately. That's coming back the next day unless unless it, he's on something to keep him up for the 72 hours, which isn't impossible. So not only do we, does he have a defined number that he's putting down in the check, but he's also free-rolling the casino. Do you reckon if this guy loses... Sorry, do you reckon if this guy wins, doubles his money from 600,000 to 1.2 million or from 2 million to 4 million, do you reckon he turns around to the casino and says, actually, you should never have given me these checks. I would have cancelled them. Uh, I am a problem gambler. Here's your money back. No. So he's free rolling the casino. He's walking into the casino and he's got the intention that if I lose... If I win, I win, and if I lose, I'm going to try and win. So the casino, as in, with shareholders, an independent organisation, you, you can love them or you can hate them. You can think they're a, 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 a scourge on society, or you can think they're a fantastic place to hang out. It doesn't matter. It's simply not fair to free roll anyone when you're purportedly playing a free game. Um, you can have you can have an edge in your favour. You know, Phil Ivey playing Baccarat was edge sorting. Well, on, in, throughout all of that, I'm on the side of the player. Because I think what he did was completely fair and he was playing above board. 
He wasn't f- he wasn't free rolling the casino. But this guy was. And the longer that we go on with people not taking responsibility, trying to free roll, trying to be if I win, I win. If I lose, I'm going to get my money back. Then the operators are completely stuck. What are they meant to do? You know, how are they meant to be able to survive? So. And it's not just people betting four million and losing it. You could have people out there with 50 grand in the bank and they lose 10,000 pounds and they do exactly the same thing. They're left with 40 grand in the bank and 99% of people in the country do not uh, not have 40 grand in the bank. People that have 40 grand in the bank either have had an inheritance, have an extraordinary paying job in the top fraction of a percentile or are advantage players. Those are the three subsets of people that have 40 grand just in cash sitting in the bank. All right? If you lose even a quarter of that, you've still got enough money to pay your rent and feed your kids for a few months whilst you probably need to go out and get a job because you need to go and pay for your gambling debts. So we need to, I think, start calling out people on behalf of not just the operators because the operators being in a position where they're stuck is bad for us. There's no ha-ha, the operators are getting stung. This isn't a story where we should be happy that Aspinalls have been free-rolled for the better part of seven years and may not be see their money and be sued because that affects us. It already is affecting us. Legitimate people are having um, bookmaker accounts frozen. They are having um, uh, source of wealth and... KYC all over the place, very intrusive. Um, All of this comes from enhanced legislation. And the enhanced legislation comes from a need to protect problem problem gamblers. But not every problem gambler is a problem gambler. And we need to start calling out and separating the Han Joe limbs Because if we do that, and we can just be left with the people that need help, then at least that is a progressive step in this discussion. The World Series was such a stupid one for me this year. The World Series of Poker in Las Vegas. I ummed and ahed about it for so long. Because the starting dates had been, uh, the day one starting dates had been pushed back to October from the summer. And I wasn't going to do it, I wasn't going to do it, I wasn't going to do it. And then I noticed that for the final day one, which is like day one E or F or G or whatever, which was on the Tuesday. There was actually a flight direct from Birmingham Airport to McCarran Airport in Vegas for something like 560 quid. It was so cheap, it was unbelievable. And when I saw that, I was like, can I get childcare? Because the issue is my wife works, right? So I've got to take the kids to school and pick them up. I can't do that if I'm in America. So the next issue is can I sort out childcare and I could get the in-laws down to come and take the kids to school for a week or maybe two weeks if I ran deep, right? Um, and I think last minute I decided I'm going to do this now. And then the the, 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 the stupidest spanner in the works is that there were some impromptu Friday night beers 
that I went out on that turned out to be quite a lot of Friday night beers. And the flight was on the Sunday and I had an Esther application to sort out, but that takes 48 hours. I didn't do it on the Friday afternoon and the Friday evening. It was really careless of me, right? And so I wake up on the Saturday and I'm a little bit hungover. And by the time it gets to Saturday afternoon, I'm like, they don't actually tell you if you, you, if you um, are successful in your Esther application. Immediately, you do have to wait. I was like, oh, I can't. This, this feels a little bit too stressful and irresponsible to buy the flight tomorrow morning having not done the Esther application and it's less than 24 hours. And so I just bailed. I, it was kind of an excuse to bail, I guess. Um, and that's a shame because I quite enjoy going over to Las Vegas and playing the World Series when I can. As you get older and you have more responsible responsibilities, it just gets harder though, doesn't it? I was quite happy to see it. Was it either on day four or day five? Stephen Chidwick was the chip leader. Now, the World Series of Poker main event is about 8,000, 7,000 to 8,000 entries. $10,000 to join to enter the tournament. About $10 million for first place. So to be chip leader, I mean, that's always an interesting one, buying in, by the way, because that means that the min cash is around about $15,000, which means that you have to go through the palaver of declaring even a min cash as you leave McCarran Airport and get back into the UK. And they don't make it easy. It's not like you, you would think that there was enough people doing it, especially from Las Vegas Airport at the time of the World Series of Poker, where you've got hundreds of Brits and Europeans and Germans flying in, and the min cash is enough that you need to declare. You'd think they would, they would make it easy, but no, you have to go like three different floors to some unmarked office. It's like solving a Rubik's Cube inside a puzzle behind a set of bins. Um, Stephen Chidwick was the chip leader after day um, four or day five. Ended up finishing in the top 100, so didn't hold on to it. But just quite simply, this guy is unbelievable. If you haven't heard of him, he is... Um, well, if you have a look at the England all-time money list for poker players, he's doing okay in that, sitting in first of all time. <laughs> um, when he was coming through poker playing poker around about the same time as me he was very famous online as stevie444 on poker stars and what he would do and I, I did a lot of this with him um but he had a lot more success than me is he found a little niche in satellites so satellites would be tournaments where you maybe pay one thousand dollars to to get in and um there could be a hundred people in there and 10 people will win a $10,000 seat, right? So there's no difference between finishing first and finishing 10th. And there's a huge difference between finishing 10th and finishing 11th. You get nothing for 11th, right? So the bubble in a satellite tournament is simply outrageous. It's like, do not finish 11th. And if you're first or second, you have such an advantage. And if you're ninth or 10th, the mathematics become slightly more different. Almost as a, if, the, if you imagine the bell curve, the action that you can take when first or second towards the bubble, you can simply go all in every hand. And few people are going to call you because of the ICM implications and the equity implications in satellite poker. Whereas if you are 7th, 8th, 9th or 10th, you have a decision, can I fold every single hand 
to the money? Do I have enough chips to fold and fold and fold and fold and fold? You know, is, is, the, is, the, is the small stack going to double up once, twice, three times? How many hands are there to go? It can actually make some satellite tournaments very painful. I remember playing one over in Prague, in the casino in Prague, which was a $1,000 satellite to the $10,000 um, main event. No, sorry, it was a $1,000 satellite to the €5,000 main event um, in the European Poker Tour in Prague. And um, the we got from something like uh, 200 to 20 players in or 200 to 50 players, sorry, in about three hours. And then the next 10 people took another three hours to knock out. And it was just so painfully slow. It's like everyone's just time banking and using every single second and sitting and staring. And they've got, you know, jack three off suit. And they're not going to do it. They're, they're folding every day of the week, but they're just eating up as much time as possible because... To be fair, there is equity. It might not be gamesmanship, and it might and stalling might be the most annoying thing in all of poker, um, online and live. But you actually do cost yourself some equity in these situations by acting quickly. I always choose to act quickly because I'd rather the game was a little bit more fun. And um, I did act quickly in that European poker to a satellite and I remember I, I bubbled it and I, I was the only one on the table who'd pick up his cards and just muck them if I was folding instantly if I was playing a hand I would just make instant decisions no stalling whatsoever and I was the one that bubbled it felt so unfair it really did um, but there's a skill in satellite t- tournaments I think I well I don't know how much of an edge I have anymore with poker because I don't play as much as I did. I certainly had a significant edge. It was a form of poker, No Limit Hold'em and Omaha satellite tournaments where figuring out when you could just press the accelerator. You know, if you're in fourth, fifth position and start folding too early, you could end up bubbling it. But if you pick the right moment and start jamming every single hand, you accumulate chips that people become scared of. And people will fold ace-king suited pre-flop in uh, even with six, seven big blinds. If you've got 100 big blinds and you're just jamming every um, hand. Because the people with five, six big blinds, they don't want to risk ace-king suited. Even if I've got a pair of twos, they're a coin flip. And they don't want to be a coin flip when there's so much equity on the line for finishing in the last payout position. So the maths become really easy. I got good at it, and I made a lot of money out of it. Uh, I I made a lot of my bankroll, my early bankroll days, with online satellite tournaments. Omaha, 8-game, Horse, No Limit Hold'em, a little bit less. But still, I mean, the the structure and the maths are the same uh, in No Limit Hold'em. It's just in Omaha. I thought it was a little bit easier in Omaha. Omaha. Omaha is a hand, a game that you have four cards and then the rest of it, the flop, the turn, the river is the same as No Limit Hold'em and you play the best two out of your four cards. Now, because you've got two of the best cards out of four to play, you generally will have... Uh, it's, it's a lot more frequent to get higher ranking hands. You know? Two pair is a lot in No Limit Hold'em. It's nothing in Omaha. Um, and so, because there's a lot more high ranking hands, the... 
um, the bubble structure and system in a satellite tournament was a lot easier because people are less patient. People overestimate how good their hand is in Omaha a lot more than they do in No Limit Hold'em, where you, you people just, you know, folding ace-king, folding 8-8, eight, eight, you know what I mean? Really waiting for the top four or five hands. And even then, people, you know, it's not uncommon for people to be folding aces pre-flop. So there's a real edge that can be had in satellite tournaments. Stevie444, I know he, in one year, he won over 100 satellites to the World Series of Poker main event that year. Back in the day where PokerStars was a feeder event for the World Series of Poker main event, he would play the satellites, the $33 satellites, the $100 satellites, the $500, the $1,000, the $2,000. And he was so good at it, what he would do is he would win the satellite. And then he would, obviously, you can't enter a tournament over a hundred times, but he, you can transfer tournament dollars back in the day for, you can sort of cash them in or you could sell them um, as a rubber. And so he would ca he would win over and over again and then he would cash out his tournament dollars and then just use that as more entries into satellite tournaments. And so, you know, they might be sending, Pokestars might be sending 300 people to the World Series of Poker main event, uh, um, 200 of those might have been Stephen Chidwick. Do you know what I mean? And so he was just really, really good at that, as Stevie444, and as also as Tyler's dad, 64, on um, different skins. Now, uh, Stephen Chidwick, as I say, was number one, It well, currently is number one in the all-time UK money list, was leading the... Um, uh, World Series of Poker after day four, day five. Didn't win it, but it's good to see. If you talk to a lot of professionals, he's commonly thought of as one of the greatest poker players. Doug Polk, the uh, high-stakes poker player and commentator, is currently making a short list of the top 100 poker players of all time. I'm not entirely sure if he's just going to talk about all 100 without ranking them, but if he does rank them, I hope that... Well, I, I want to have some input over there with why Stephen Chidwick should be uh, the number one poker player of all time. Um, not just playing um, poker stars satellites with him, where, of course, you know, you're just typing, you're, you're chatting shit in the, uh, in the text box. I have an experience with Stevie Chidwick a few times live. And it's one particular hand that sticks out in my memory um, uh, that sort of suggested he, he could do things that nobody else could do and the whole point of live poker which I've again I found satellite poker easier and I found live poker easier and I found Omaha tournaments uh, easier than no limit hold'em but I also enjoyed eight games because eight games because I thought I had quite a good um, grasp of do seven triple draw of the stud games and um, I am sitting in the worst possible seat in a World Series of Poker event in the win in Las Vegas in about 2011, I'm going to say. I think it was 2011. I'm set, I am sat at the $2,500 buy-in eight-game tournament in the World Series of Poker directly to the left of Mr. Stephen Chidwick. Can you imagine that, right? So 
there's 10 to 20,000 people, sometimes more, 30,000 people in the uh, conference rooms at the World Series of Poker in the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas and the Amazon room and all the other rooms that they open up. And um, I've flown a long way from home and I, I'm playing a game where I think I've got an edge over the majority of people. Uh, I'm just good at eight game and I have picked a price point, which I think is a sweet price point between... Um, you know, recreational money. Uh, there's a lot of wrecks. There's a lot more wrecks playing the $1,000, $2,500 buy-ins than there is professionals. And I don't have really an edge against the professionals. I'm really hoping that I'm going to be playing some people that are turning up and they don't know what Omaha and Stud Hilo is. Um, and instead of all of that, a long way from home, I, uh, to my direct right, sorry, I'm on the direct right, so sat right on my left, Meaning that the player to your left is the player that always acts after you. So you always have the most edge over the person sitting directly to your right. And you always have the least edge to the person sitting to your left. To my exact left is Mr. Stephen Chidwick. Of all the luck of everyone in the entire building, I don't want to be sat next to this guy more than anyone else. Sit me next to anyone. Sit me next to Helmuth. Sit me next to absolutely anyone. Don't sit me next to Stephen Chidwick. I didn't even think with the amount of money that he'd been playing, he would be playing tournaments like... Um, just looking at his hand and mob, by the way. If you want to know the uh, the top 10 all time, so the 10 Paul Nui, 5 million. But these are these are caches, right? So you don't know how, many, how much these people bought in for. Dave Elliott, uh, 6 million. It's Devilfish, uh, Charlie Carroll, 9 million. Um, Sam Trickett, second, 21 million. First, Stephen Chidwick, $37 million. Just unbelievable. So it's an unbelievable amount of money. So the all-time number one UK um, player in terms of cashes. Uh, I'm sitting in the worst possible seat. He's going to directly act every single time after me. This is what's sitting to my left, me being to the right means. I act. I have the most amount of information on the people that sit to my right. I have the least amount of information on the people that sit to my left. And there is Mr. Stephen Chidwick. So we are playing eight game and I have gone into it with um, a, a strategy where you always change your strategy based on the players in front of you at the table. If you're playing drunk businessmen, then you will play in a certain way. If you're playing Stephen Bloody Chidwick, then you will be playing a different way. Uh, with Stephen Chidwick, I have to presume, with people like this, that I have so little edge, so little equity against them. He's, he knows more than me. He's more clever than me. He's better at strategy than me. He's everything, he's everything that he does at the poker table is better than me. So how can I, how can I protect myself and maximise my edge. I'm, I'm definitely negative EV and decision-making against the guy. But what I thought I can do is I can therefore maximize variance and make the game a lot more random. Let's not try and be clever against Stephen Chidwick. Let's play a high variance strategy and get lucky. Maybe I'll get into a coin flip with him and that's the best that I can ever wish for against Stephen Chidwick. If we can turn our cards over and we're 50-50, then I've got a coin flips chance of knocking him out. And given how much better than me he is, 
that will do for me. So I went into this with a high variance, high volatile strategy, and I just lost hand after hand after hand, dripped chips away until I got to about a critical point, a critical mass of chips. And it was time that we weren't even in the money yet, but it was time for me to stop playing hands and pick a hand to get it all in with, right? And um, the game rotation is Omaha, which is good for me because I feel like it's, uh, well, it's meant to be my best game. Although sat next to the guy I'm sat next to, do I have any best games really, to tell you the truth? So I'm very patiently picking my, picking my spot, waiting for a premium hand. And I'm just going to get all my money in at some point, be it flop, turn, river, at some point, pre-flop if I can, and with, with, with a hand that I'm confident is going to be better than anyone else that I'm up against. And I get dealt ace, ace, king, ten, with the ace, ten of spades. So that's as good as any, that's the pretty much the top hand in um, Omaha. I can't do better than that. I think, well, somehow I want to get all of my money in. It was quite a aggressive table. There was lots of raising, three bets, four bets, five bets. Um, so I thought, I'm first to act here. I'll limp in. Someone will raise me. And then I'll jam all in on top of them and we'll get our money in pre-flop and I'll be a favourite. And that's as much as I can wish for. Then it's up to the gods. If I lose, I lose. Can't do anything about it. All I can do. All you can ever do in poker is get your money in as a favourite as many times as you can. And so I limp in, which is actually, you know, it, it, it looks quite strong sometimes when you limp in. Um, but I'm limping in because I'm thinking somebody behind me is going to raise. And it was Stephen Chidwick. And he min-raises me. And everybody else folds all the way around. I think mostly they fold because it's Stevie444. And I think if I jam now, it's going to look too strong to Stephen Chidwick. It's going to be like limping and then jamming all in. This guy is not an idiot. This is the best player in the world. So that's too obvious. He'll just fold immediately. So all of a sudden I went in with a game plan. And I've got to scrap the game plan at the first decision point because Stephen Chidwick's muddling with my head. So I think, okay, I can't jam. I don't even want to three bam. I'm just going to call and then we'll figure out a strategy of getting the money into the middle on the flop. So I just call him and I'm thinking, I don't care what the flop is. I just don't care. It could be the most dangerous flop in the world. It could be the driest flop in the entire world. The three cards that are about to come out are, in, are insignificant. The only thing that I want to figure out is how do I get my money into the middle. And the flop comes down 10-9-2 rainbow. Not the greatest flop in the world for a pair of aces, ace-king. Um, I don't, um, I don't, I've got this, a pair of aces. I've got maybe a chance of a, um, some sort of backdoor straight, some sort of backdoor flush, some sort of backdoor full house. It's not great. There's a lot of hands with two nine ten that could be beating me. Drawing hands with a jack and a queen, with a jack and a king, with a queen and a king, with a seven and an eight, with a six and an eight, with a six and a seven. All these drawing hands 
can pull a straight on me with that 9-10 out there. And they're very typical ranges for Omaha to be drawing around that point. The 9 and the 10 are horrible cards to flop down. It, but it doesn't matter. I went in with a strategy that I'm getting my money in no matter what. He's not going to befuddle me. How can I get my money in? I'm thinking, if I min bet, he's just going to raise me. And then I'll be able to jam it all in. You'll probably be pop committed. So let's go for that. And I min bet and he just called. And yet again, I've got him with a strategy and he's done the opposite of what I thought he was going to do. And the turn is the two of spades. We've now got two spades out there um, to complete my flush draw. Um, but we've now got full house possibilities. It's generally safe unless he's got a two. But again, I'm, all I'm thinking is I want to get all of my money into the middle of the table here. Um, now I thought, how can I do that? If I just, if I just min bet, he's just going to call again like he did on the flop. Uh, but if I check, he'll raise and then I can jam all in and he's probably pot committed here. So that's what I'll do. I'll check, he'll raise, he'll think I'm chickening out into the pot. He'll think I'm running away with this turn card. So I'll check, I'm sure he's going to bet and then I can go all in. I check. And he checks for the third decision point in a row. He does the opposite of what I think he's going to do. And he's really starting to mess in my head. And the river is a rainbow eight, meaning there's no flush possibilities. But now eight, nine, tens on the board. Jack Queen beats me. Uh, six, seven beats me. Any pair of eights, nines, tens, twos, completes full houses and quads. But I'm still like, no, these pair of aces are good. I don't know what he's got. Perhaps he had two pair on the flop and now I've got the two pair with the aces and the ducks. So I'm almost certain that he hasn't got anywhere and I'm ahead just now. So again, the game is, can I get the money into the middle? Um, uh, if I check, he's definitely going to be trying to put money into the middle. He might min-raise and I can go over the top of him. He might jam, but I'm probably good. If I bet... High, he might fold, and I want to maximize my equity here. If I min bet, he might jam. I don't think he's going to call. So that's exactly what I did. If I min bet, if I just went in for a um, couple of big blinds, then he's going to jam. And I went in for a couple of big blinds. And for the very first time on all streets, he actually did what I expected him to do, and he jammed. He put all his money in the middle, and I now have to call all in, and I'm staring at him. And this was the day when he had hair and looked like a normal person. And he's this, this nice English kid. He's 10 years younger than me. And I'm looking at his face, and he's looking just directly at me, completely expressionless, but with no pulse. He's just looking at me like he's the most comfortable person in the entire world. He looked at me as if he definitely, definitely has... Jack, queen, seven, eight, pair of nines, pair of tens, one of these hands that completes a straight or a full house. And I'm looking at him going, how can this be possible? Like you've done exactly what I didn't want you to do on every single street. And then the one time you do exactly what I want you to do, I'm now almost sure that you're beating me. Uh, it's like, if I don't have it, he knows I don't have it. If I do have it, he knows I do have it. What is going on here? And my brain started melting out of my ears. 
And then I get into a spot where someone's going to call the clock on me. And no one has clock called the clock on me ever on a poker table because I'm not one of those guys that sits there and needs to make a decision. I play by instinct. And I think once I've made my mind up, I'm never stalling. I don't need to do anything. And I'm looking at it I don't know what to do. If I, You're ahead of me. So I can't call. It's only a few chips left. My strategy was, though, to get my money into the middle no matter what happened. But you're... But... Now I can't do that because, but what I wanted to happen has happened and I still can't go ahead with it. And I sat there and I picked up the cards and I almost couldn't muck. And I'm looking at him going, he hasn't got it, has he? He knows how, and what my brain turned into complete and utter mush. He had so confused me and he confused me because he managed to do exactly what I didn't want him to do on every street. He did the opposite of what I thought he was going to do until he then picked a point where he did exactly what I thought he was going to do, which confused me even more. The guy is a phenomenon and no one, I've never felt as discombobulated as I did at that moment at the table. And I picked up my four cards and because I was confused, I just mucked him and threw, threw my pair of aces with a pair of ducks into the muck. And of course he mucked his hand I ask him what he's got and he just looks at me with a smile and doesn't say anything. And to this day, I've no idea. And he's the one player I've ever played against, Stephen Chidwick, who is just... He's, I, I felt like he was almost perfect, but I would never, ever want to sit down at a poker table with him ever again. Uh, what he did to me at that Omaha table, if he was doing that to people to recreational players during the main event of the World Series of Poker last year. They don't have a chance at the guy. It's almost like he can see through cards. And if they don't have a chance at him, that's probably why he ended up as the chip leader um, after day four, after day five. It's just such a shame the poker tournaments are such that um, even if you're the best player there, you know, with 100 players left, um, there's so much variance and volatility and luck involved that... Um, the best player in the tournament probably isn't going to end up as number one. But yeah, Stephen Chidwick, if you walk into a casino and you see him at the poker, play, at the poker table, it would very much be a plus EV decision just to turn around and go to the bar instead.